So for the last few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of being entangled. What does it look like? The Bible says that we should lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And so we've been looking at different sins, root sins, systemic sins that lead to other sins in our lives in order to know what they are in our lives and recognize them to avoid the consequences of them. The reality is, and I've shared this each week with you guys, so you could probably do this by memory by now probably, there's three consequences that are true for every person who's entangled in sin. First, if they're entangled in sin, if you are, or you know someone who is, their communication with God is interrupted. They're unable to have open communication. They may be saying words and praying prayers, but they're not getting past the ceiling. If they have a sin in their life that they're unwilling to repent of, to abandon, to um, eradicate from their lives. Okay, so their communication is interrupted. Their growth for the Lord, secondly, as a consequence, is, is disrupted. They're not able to continue to grow. In fact, they stop growing and they begin to drift and go backwards and become more like the person they were before they knew Jesus Christ. They don't just stand still. Spiritually, you drift away. You become more like the person you used to be. So your growth in the Lord is disrupted. And the third thing that's true of every person who's entangled in sin is that their influence for the Lord is corrupted. And I'm afraid that third one is where most of the church today lives. Man, we are the, we just sang it. We are called, we have the power of the Lord in our lives. And yet so many times our influence in this world that is so crazy and chaotic right now is anemic. That's not the way the Lord wants it to be, but if we're entangled in sin, our influence is gonna be corrupted. We're not gonna be the influencers that God wants us to be, and he definitely has us here right now in this world for such a time as this to be influencers. So we know those three things are true. And so over the past few weeks, we've talked about the pride of life. We've talked about the fear of man. Last week, we talked about a tough one, the lust of the flesh. And I wanna say to you guys that several people from our church rose up this week and chose to confess that they've been struggling with that in their life. Not in front of everyone, but privately to say, I need help and I'm seeking out help. Yeah, praise the Lord for that, amen. To say, I, I can't do it on my own. I need some accountability. And what I would say to you guys is, is with any of these sins, wherever the Lord has landed on you, wherever the Holy Spirit has spoken to you, it'd be a great thing if you told somebody else what's going on in your life. It could be your spouse, another trusted friend or brother or sister in the Lord, somebody in your connect group. I'm not saying broadcast it everywhere necessarily, but I'm saying find somebody that you can confess to, somebody that you can say, look, I need some accountability. I know I'm my own worst enemy. I know I fall victim to this sin and I get entangled in it. What I need is some help with it. And that can be provided through the fellowship that you find here at the church. So we've talked about all these sins. Today, we're gonna to tackle another of these systemic sins. One, the Bible actually describes as a root, and that's what it is. It's a, it starts at the bottom and works its way out into our lives. And it's a sin the Bible calls the love of money. Yeah, the love of money. So find your Bible, find 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. And let me just welcome in those of you who are on Marshall campus, those of you who are watching online this morning, as Brother Tim said earlier, uh, those of you at the Billy Moore campus this morning. We're glad that you're tuned in with us as well and encourage everybody to find your Bible. And when you have that, Stand with me out of reverence for God and his word, and I'm going to read 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10 aloud as you follow along silently. This is what the inspiration of God uh, through Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap 
And many foolish and harmful desires will plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Thank you. You can be seated this morning. You know, when we talk about money, we all have it. We all need it. We all work for it. We all use it. So all of us can relate to it. Money means different things, though, to different ones of us. For some people, money represents this idea of security, this idea that I can be fully independent. I've got what I need financially, so I'm not insecure because I don't really need anyone else. I can depend on myself and my finances and my bank account. It can mean that. It can mean status. We all know what that's about. The first time I ever went to Africa, I realized that Man, so much of what we live for in this part of the world means nothing in Africa. I mean, these people, like Paul said, have food and clothing, and that's about it. And they're content, you know. But in our world, it's not that way, really. In our world, we are sort of into status. What's the latest label, latest gadget, latest whatever, car, house, boat, toy, whatever it might be. We seek those things out because they identify us to other people. They sort of identify what level we're on financially and economically. So it can mean status. It can mean freedom. Money can mean freedom. If I have enough money, then I can do whatever I want, right? It could be free. And yeah, I suppose if you won the lottery or you uh, found a million dollars somewhere, you never have to work again, you might think you were free at first. You know, all of a sudden I'm free. So money can mean freedom. It means different things to different ones of us. But what I would encourage you to do, parents, is start a conversation at lunch today with your kids about this idea. Ask your kids what money means to them. You say, I already know what money means to them. (laughs) They like to spend it. That's what it means to them, you know. Tell them what it means to you or ask them this question. Kids, what do you think money means to your mom and dad? You might not like the answer, but it'd be worth having the conversation. I think this passage that I just read to you is probably the most misquoted Bible passage in the entire Bible, right? How many times have you heard somebody say that money is the root of all evil? Yeah, that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So we get that wrong. So we don't shy away from talking about money at Marbury. You know that. We don't talk about it all the time, but we don't shy away from talking about it. Just so you know, the last time someone stood here and talked about money was in February, seven months ago. So those of you who are watching online, don't turn the thing off yet, okay? We are talking about money this morning, but we don't shy away from talking about that. Here's why. Whatever's close to your heart, is close to the heart of God. And for most of us, our money is really close to our heart. For whatever reason, that's just what we do. We struggle with it. So this morning, we think about being entangled in the love of money. I want to help you make three discoveries. And, and And they're pretty quick. So stay with me here. First is this. Contentment, Paul says contentment is a better goal. Better goal than what? Than seeking riches. Paul uses this equation. He says godliness plus contentment equals great gain. That's a great equation. It's true. That's what your Bible says. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Most of us want the great gain part of it, but we're going about it all wrong. We're looking for it in other ways. Instead of seeking godliness in our life, instead of seeking contentment as a goal, most people that you know, most people that I know are chasing something in their life. They're pursuing something financially. They have something in front of them that they want to buy or acquire or the next step they're trying to get to. And they're so focused on that, that contentment seems to elude them. You know what contentment is, is when you can just be at peace. When you just go, I'm good. I don't really have to have something else to make my life good. I'm good right now. 
I'm in a good place. I'm in a good place with the Lord. So contentment's a better goal. Think about Paul's logic here. He says it makes a lot of sense. You brought nothing into the world, and you're going to take nothing out of the world. And that's true for every human being. What did you bring into the world? Nothing. You came out of the womb with nothing, right? Not even clothes. You had nothing. How are you going to leave? You may leave with some clothes on, okay? But you're not taking them with you where you go, okay? You don't get to take any of it with you. So you think about all the things that we value and care about, the things that are in our safety deposit boxes or our safes or the things we hang on our walls or we have in special keepsake boxes or whatever. Someday someone else is going to have all that stuff. You're not taking any of it with you. I'm not either. None of us will. And so if we only have it temporarily, which is what Paul's saying, you didn't bring it into the world and you're not taking it out of the world, then why not seek contentment in your life instead of pursuing wealth and riches all the time? Because you can't take it with you. You've heard that a million times in your life. You can't take it with you when you go. So Paul's logic is true because when we pursue those things, they don't bring us contentment. In fact, Paul says they're dangerous. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. Paul says this, he says, if you have food and clothes, we'll be content. Now, I gotta be honest with you. Most of us would not be content with just food and clothes, would we? Food and clothes are great. But would that be enough for me? Is that enough for you? Let me ask you this, what would make you content? You ever thought about that? Well, yeah, whatever that thing is I'm chasing, whatever that thing is I'm pursuing, no, that's not gonna make you content. Because when you get that, there'll be something after that. And when you get that, there'll be something after that. No, Paul says, if we as an apostle have food and clothes, we'll be content. Because you know what? We don't get to own anything anyway. And everything God puts into our hands is, is here to be used by him to help us reach more people. So if you can't take it with you, why not give it away to help other people? I mentioned this. We, we do talk about money here at Marvel. I have a friend who's a campus pastor at his church. His church runs about 4,000 before Corona uh, on a Sunday. Big church, but... But his pastor, the lead pastor, the one who preaches on Sundays, will not talk about money from the pulpit. He won't even teach what the Bible says about it because he doesn't want to offend anybody. So the average person in their church gives $20 a week, he said. So he said, we don't have enough money to barely pay the bills. We can't pay our staff well. We meet in schools and office buildings. We don't have a building of our own. We don't have a campus of our own, which is not a big deal. But he said, the bigger deal is we can't bring staff in because they can't make a living working here. And he said... I wish our pastor would just talk about what the Bible says about that. He talks about other stuff in the Bible, but he doesn't ever talk about what God says about money. Well, I'm afraid that's an extreme example, but I'm afraid that the church, not just this church, but all of our churches, and especially this part of the world, are entangled in enabling this sense of the love of money in our lives, and it leads to a lot of bad things. But one of the reasons we want to talk about it is because there's some of you who are brand new in your faith. And you need to know what the counsel of God says, even about money. You need to understand the full counsel of God, not just on some things, but on all things, especially something as important as the sin of the love of money, which can entangle you and cause all those consequences that I talked about earlier. So, you know, typically we'll have a Sunday in February or March where we do a thing called Prove the Tithe. And uh, it's a Sunday where we ask everyone to bring 10% of a pay period, whatever that is for them. Let's just prove what could happen if, if everybody in our church were to tithe. And the reality is everybody doesn't. And I don't know who gives anything. I only know what I give. That's the only person in our church who I know gives anything or what they give. So I have no idea who gives. I don't know who I'm talking to this morning. But statistically, we know that there's a lot of people in our church who never give anything. Now, if you never give anything to the work of the Lord, you are entangled in the love of money. 
Because if you don't have your priorities right in that way, that's a clear example of not having your priorities right. And so you talk about tithing and people say, well, tithing is an Old Testament idea. So, you know, and I've heard this, people come up and want to talk after the service about this idea. Somebody will probably want to talk about it this morning. So let me stop you right here, okay? Tithing is a biblical idea. Oh, no, the New Testament doesn't mention tithing. Okay, let me ask you this. The Old Testament says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Should we just set that aside because it's in the Old Testament? It's an Old Testament idea. That's where it originated. Well, no, because Jesus said something about it in the New Testament too. Okay, so that's what you're saying? <laughs> Look, here's the way we approach it. You don't tithe to be saved. That's, that's the law. But the teaching of the Old Testament is instructive for us. It's all from God, old and new, and it instructs us. And so it's wisdom. That's the way God set the nation of Israel up. He said, everybody give an equal percentage. Not an equal amount of money, but everyone starts the same place. You all have an income, give first, first 10% to the Lord. And that works, by the way. It works really well. So we encourage people to do that so that they won't be entangled. Generosity is probably the greatest antidote to being entangled in the love of money. When you're constantly thinking about ways to give money away to help other people, then you don't get so wrapped up and focused in it yourself. This is what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. So godliness plus contentment is actually great gain. It actually benefits everyone. So let me ask you this, what drives you at work? Is it excellence or is it your salary? Is it integrity or is it getting rich? What drives you? The reality is it's a telling thing in our lives when we think about contentment. If contentment is a better goal, how many of us are really seeking just to be content? To not always want more but to be content with what the Lord provides for us right where we are. So that's the first point. Contentment's a better goal. The second point that Paul makes is that greed is a bitter trap. He talks about here the idea that people who do this fall into temptation, a trap. Every one of these sins we've talked about, have you seen the, the theme that runs through every one of them, a snare, a trap? All these sins lead to bad things in our life. And he says that greed is a bitter trap. Now, I don't know if you've had any experience trapping things. I'm not a trapper, okay? Several, about 18 months ago, I guess, I got up early one morning, still dark, uh, went into my kitchen to make a protein drink, turned on the blender, still dark, I don't have the lights on, you know, I'm just, the second I turn that blender on, it, it's one of these blenders that'll grind up wood, I mean, it is like noisy, and it, the second I turned it on, I smelled this awful, pungent smell, I mean, it's skunk, I smell skunk in my kitchen. And I go turn the light on. Is there a skunk in the kitchen? No, I don't see a skunk anywhere. I go open the back door. I don't smell anything outside. All I can surmise is that there's a skunk under my house. I have a pier and beam house. And the moment I turn that blender on, I guess he got scared and he sprayed under my kitchen. So it was so bad, I couldn't even drink my protein drink. I just put it up. I was like, I got to leave. So my poor wife's still in bed. She doesn't know. I just let her figure it out on her own. <laughs> it literally woke her up. She was like, what do I smell? And she called me. She goes, there's a skunk in our house. I said, did you see a skunk in our house? And she goes, no, but I smell. Did you smell that this morning? I said, yeah, I left. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she was like, well, I think there's a skunk. So what I figured out is it must be under the house. We went through the entire house cautiously and didn't find a skunk. Okay. So I had to come back home that day. Anyway, so um, no skunk. So I called a buddy of mine. I said, look, I think I have a skunk under my house. He, he's a guy who traps all kinds of animals. And no, so I said, he goes, go get this kind of trap. It's a little skinny trap. Put a trash bag over it. Put some sardines in it. Ugh. So I did exactly what he said. And he said, then just wait. So I set this thing. 
Get up the next morning, I go out there, the door's closed on it. So it's a live trap. So uh, I think, what do I do now? <laughs> it's a skunk. Right? I call my buddy. I was like, okay, the door closed. What does that mean? He goes, well, you caught something. I, I know that. How do I figure out what I caught? He goes, well, you need to go over to the trap and just peel back that trash bag. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. What if I'm on the wrong end of this skunk, you know? I mean, seriously, I'm like, what do you do? If I pick the thing up, it's going to spray me. I mean, he goes, look, it's such a small trap that it can't raise its tail. If it can't raise its tail, it can't spray. And I was like, are you a skunk expert? What do you really know about skunks? You know, I'm like, can you come over here and do this? He's like, just go do it. It's no big deal. I was like, it's a big deal to get sprayed by a skunk, you know? So, so I go over there and I peel it back. And what I discovered is that possums like sardines too. In the next three days, I caught three possums. I never caught a skunk and figured out where he was coming in. The point is this, the way a trap works, you guys understand this, the way a trap works is you bait it with something that is so irresistible to the animal that its sense of danger goes away because it's so focused on what it, what it wants, the bait. And Paul says that greed is a trap. It's a bitter trap. You get so focused on what you're going for that the sense of danger involved in it, the sense of warning about it goes away and you go, well, but I want that thing, whatever it is, I'm gonna pursue that at whatever cost. And most people would say, well, you know, money, it's not that big a deal to pursue money. It's not that big a deal. The Bible says it's a trap that you get entangled in it and all of a sudden you don't, who's more free, someone in a trap or someone out of a trap? It, it affects your freedom. And so what I want you to see is the same thing that happens to a skunk or someone else that goes in a trap happens to us. We lose our sense of danger and we go into this thing and all of a sudden then we don't have the freedom God intended for us and we become trapped. The desire to be rich entangles a lot of Christians. The last church I served in in Weatherford several years ago, uh, the pastor of that church wanted to bring in this famous Christian. He was actually a comedian, a well-known personality at the time. And wanted to bring him to our city because he had had him at previous churches um, in their city. And so he said, it'd be great for our city. Weatherford's not a huge city. And I think he would really, I think he could sell out the convention center, the civic center. And so, you know, we're about 30 miles from Fort Worth at, over in there in Weatherford. So we would, we advertised on the Christian radio stations and sold tickets. And he agreed to come for a certain amount of ticket sales and all this stuff and all that. So the day of the event, I mean, we did all the publicity. I followed his press kit just like he asked us to. The day of the event, we're about 15 minutes before it's supposed to start, and there's hardly anybody in the Civic Center. There's probably 100 people. And so his handler came out and got me and said he wants to talk to you. So I was, cool. So I'll go back there, backstage to the green room, you know, where they have crackers and cheese and stuff, whatever, you know. So I go back there, and he's like, he is furious. This guy, this great Christian comedian guy, he is furious with me. And he's like, have you looked out there? What in the world did you do to publicize this event? He goes, I don't usually play small venues like this, so I don't know what you did, but there's only 100 people out there, and I don't play to venues of 100 people, and the ticket sales are going to be terrible. I'm not even going to make any money tonight. And I was like, wow, you've lost your way completely. What about the 100 people sitting out there who need to hear the gospel? <laughs> do they not matter? Didn't matter to him. He lost his way. John Steinbeck, the famous author, said this, a strange species we are. We can stand anything God and nature can throw at us, save only plenty. If I want to destroy a nation, I would give it too much, and I'd have it on its knees, miserable, greedy, and sick. The Bible says that those who pursue wealth fall into many foolish and harmful things, things that bring ruin into our lives. And again, most people don't think of 
pursuing wealth as that. They don't think of it as that. I want to say this to students, college students, high school, junior high students. You've got your whole life before you. Don't make wealth the goal of your life. You're going to decide what major you're going to choose. You're going to decide what college you're going to go to. And at some point, you're going to think about how much money am I going to make? And it's not bad to consider that, but I'm saying don't let wealth be the goal of your life. Let contentment be the goal of your life. Don't pursue these other things because, as the Bible says, many people in doing so have wandered away from the faith. The last point this morning is this. Grief is a bad result. Most of us don't choose grief. All of us experience grief from time to time. But he says here that many people pursuing wealth have actually wandered away from the faith and and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so this is what Jesus said about the idea of loving God and loving money. He said, no servant can serve two masters. You either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And love is the issue. Remember last week I talked about the lust of the flesh, and, I, and Paul talks about loving pleasure rather than loving God. That pretty well describes someone who's entangled in the lust of the flesh. Well, somebody who is entangled in the love of money loves money. That's the issue, not money, but loving money. And you remember in the series in the Names of God, we talked about Elkanah, the God who's jealous of anything in our lives that threatens our love for him. So if there's another love in our life that threatens our love for him, well, Jesus just said it, you can't love both. You can act like you can love both, but you can't love both. You'll love one and not love the other. And what Jesus is saying is, wealth is never a good thing to love. Money is never a good thing to love. It replaces your love for God, ultimately, if you pursue that in your life and leads you away from what the Lord wants in your life. So most people don't plan to wander away from their faith. They do it. They wander away for something else. You guys know that old illustration of the the frog and the frying pan. People say kettle, but I don't really know how you get a frog in a kettle anyway. But the frying pan, you know, where you... You put a frog in a boiling kettle of, or skillet of water, whatever, the frog will just jump out, right? But you put the frog in there at room temperature and you just turn up the heat a degree at a time, minute by minute, and the frog will actually boil to death and never try to get out. It's just dying by degrees. That's what happens when you seek wealth in your life, when you seek to be uh, entangled in that or you end up being entangled in that is you die by degrees. You end up piercing yourself through, as he says here, with many a pain. So, so let me ask you a question, actually three questions this morning. In terms of loving money or loving God, which do you spend more time thinking about? Just answer that for you. Every day of your life, most days of your life. Do you spend more time thinking about loving, pursuing things that money can buy for you? Or do you spend more time actually thinking about loving and pursuing God in your life? What do you spend more time uh, thinking about? What do you spend, uh, what, which of those things gives you greater joy in your life? Pursuing money, pursuing the things money can buy, or pursuing God? Which brings greater joy into your life? And the third question is this, which one do you get up early in the morning for? Some people get up early and they get to work and they Nothing wrong with being a hard worker. I'm not saying that. But, but they're pursuing this. They love money, and so they're working there constantly. They even lose sleep over it. Or do you get up early in the morning to spend time with the Lord, to seek him, to love him with your whole heart? You can't love God and money. And there's a threat here that happens. And I want to encourage you that grief is always a bad result, and it's something that we should avoid and stay away from. If the result of, run to, uh, of, of being entangled in the love of money 
is a, a falling away or a drifting away from your relationship with God, then what does that, that do in your family's life when your kids see that in you? I think one of the greatest griefs that a parent understands and sees is when their adult children decide they don't want any part of Christianity. Because they look at our Christianity as their parents and think, didn't do it for you. You still loved money. You still pursued all the things about money, and you only made a little room in your life for God. And when they have a choice and they move out of our houses and they have a chance to look back, they go, I don't want what you had. Didn't make a difference in your life. I don't want it either. But on the other hand, if as parents we're loving God more than anything else anyone else in our lives, that, I promise you, makes an impact in your kids' lives. It's not a guarantee that they won't ever turn their back on God, but it's at least your kids can't point the finger at you and say, you're a hypocrite. That's a grief most parents don't ever want to deal with. And what happens is when you pursue those things, that ends up being true in your life. You remember the, the life of Moses that God put him over the nation of Israel and he was supposed to help decide the cases and rule on the law for them and basically be their judge, but he had too much to do. And he went to his father-in-law, or his father-in-law came to him, Jethro was his name, and he said, Moses, you need some help. You need to appoint some other men uh, over these certain numbers of people and you need to manage this a little better so that you're not the one everybody has to come to. It's going to drive you crazy. You're going to wear yourself out. So he did that. Now, this is the interesting thing. Exodus 18 talks about the requirements for those men. When you go out and look for those men to appoint as judges, Here's one of the qualifications. It says, he describes it this way in Exodus 18, 21. Find men who hate dishonest gain. In other words, find men that can't be bribed. Find men who can't be bought. Find men who are going to rule solely on the law, God's law, not based on whether or not this is going to help them financially later on or hurt them financially later on. Right? We all know stories of people who have a lack of integrity in their life, people who love money so much that they make decisions based on it, even if it's the wrong decision. My, uh, my stepdad, when he was alive, he was the comptroller for Tyler Pipe over in Tyler. And he would tell me all these stories. He was there for 42 years. He'd tell me all these stories about different ways that people stole money from the company. <laughs> and it was partly his job to catch them and stop them. And one of the stories he told me that so, so fascinates me is Tyler Pipe buys scrap metal, and they buy this cast iron scrap metal, and they melt it down and make cast iron pipe. So they bought scrap metal. So they had one vendor who would uh, come through, and, and they'd come over the scales at the Tyler Pipe facility there, and they'd weigh their metal, and they'd go dump it, and they'd pay them when they came back through for however much scrap metal they brought, you know, a certain amount of money for, per pound or whatever. But over, over several weeks and months, my stepdad realized that the amount that was coming in didn't add up. There was a discrepancy somewhere. So he began to do his own investigation. And what he discovered is, or what they thought was happening, is that these guys that ran this company that were bringing in all this scrap metal had put a false bottom in their truck. So their truck really only held this much metal instead of this much metal. You say, well, that doesn't help. How does that work with the scales? Well, in the, between the floor, the false bottom of that truck, and the real bottom of that truck, there was a guy in that truck, and there was a trap door. And so when they would pull over the scales, there was actually a trap door on the scale. And he would drop down through the bottom of the truck into the scale, and he would adjust the number. Kind of ingenious, right? And then he would get back up in the truck. My stepdad figured this out, and so he hired or didn't hire. He actually called the Texas Rangers, and they came, and a man with a gun got down in the scale. And one night when the truck rolled across the scale, the man dropped down into the scale there was a Texas Ranger there with a gun to arrest him, okay? So 
why would somebody do that? That's dishonest gain. That is somebody who says, I love money so much, I would rather have money than integrity. I'd rather have money than the truth. I'd rather have money than anything. I would go to jail because of my love of money. Now, that sounds crazy to people, but that's what Paul's talking about, that it's, it leads to grief in your life, the love of money. And, and you don't have to have that. You can pursue what the Lord has for you. What I love about the Lord is that the Lord is about a relationship with us. And I love that he cares about what we actually love. He cares about your heart. He's not just interested in your actions. He cares about what happens inside of you. And that speaks to this issue, that he wants to have a relationship with every single human being. That he created us, he sent Jesus for us, because he wants to have a love relationship with us. He's never gonna be satisfied in your life with anything short of your full love. Now, many of you have already placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I've never done that, or you're watching online. You've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. I wanna tell you something. You can't go to heaven without Jesus Christ. You'll go to hell. That's true. That's what the Bible says. That's a terrible thing. It's awful. But you don't have to. That's what the good news is, is that no one has to go to hell. You get to choose. God is sovereign. He's in complete control. And he gives you a little bit of control. And that is you get to decide what you do with Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Jesus said about himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father unless he comes through me. And whoever, Paul says in Romans, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this morning, you could call upon the name of the Lord and he will save you. Promises to do that. He's good for every promise. He'll save you and you won't answer for your sins someday. He'll change your future. He'll change your condition. He'll take you from being a stranger and he'll adopt you into his family and make you his child. And that relationship will last forever. Nothing can change that, not even your sin. And that's the love of the Lord. That's the grace of God in your life. So I'm gonna ask everybody just to bow your head and close your eyes here as we close in just a minute. And I want to give you a chance to do that. I want to give you a chance to choose Jesus Christ this morning. We witnessed a young man be baptized this morning because not to save him, because he's already saved. Baptism is a picture to everyone of what's already happened in your life. You die to your old way of life and he resurrects you to a new way of life. And so this morning, if you'd like to have Christ as your savior, I'm going to ask you with nobody looking around but me just to raise your hand. And I'm not going to embarrass you, but I just want to know. I can lead you in calling on the name of the Lord this morning. Those of you who are watching online, Maybe this is your day, the day of salvation for you. If you raise your hand, I'm going to lead you in a time of just calling on the Lord. We call that prayer, but it's not a prayer that saves you. It's your faith, and that's expressed by just trusting the Lord and saying, I believe you're the Savior of the world, and I want you to come into my life and save me. So if you want to be saved this morning, just pray this to him. Dear Lord in heaven, I know I'm a sinful person, and I'm sorry. I do not want sin. I don't want any part of it anymore. I want Jesus to be my savior. I want to live forever. I want to be in a relationship with you forever. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Help me live in a way that honors you from here on. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. Now look at me. If you ask Christ to come into your life, and the Bible says that all the angels in heaven above rejoice when someone gives their life to Christ. And we would like a chance to do that with you too in just a minute. So before we do that, I'm going to tell you how to do that at the very end of the service. One of the things you could do is go to marbley.org slash next card that Tim mentioned earlier and just complete that next card. That will help us know how to get in touch with you so you can take your next step. Tim mentioned this morning that I was going to make a, an announcement, an update, and I'm going to do that right now. So hang on with me just for a second. Don't tune out yet if you're watching online. 
you guys know that, um, that basically for the last four months, I've provided most of the preaching slash teaching. I'm the teaching pastor, so nobody thinks I preach. So whatever I do, I don't know what you call this, but uh, I've been doing most of that over the last four months and been my privilege to do that. Early on, like the first week after we experienced the loss of our pastor, I met with some of our senior leadership team and our deacon officers, and I told them what I've told you, and that is that I have no desire to be considered to be the next senior pastor for our church. And that's still true. God's just not a calling that God has put in my life. But I communicated that openly. I did know that we needed to have somebody in our church who could stand here and communicate God's word, someone that most of you knew and hopefully trusted so that you could have the comfort and peace of, of moving through a time of, of really hardship in the life of our church. And none of us as leaders have ever been through anything like this. It's, it's just unprecedented. And so we've been taking it a step at a time. And so here we are four months later, and I think we are healing. I'm not sure we're there yet, but I think we're making great progress and we're moving forward. And now, as Tim mentioned, we're getting ready to put a search committee together to call our next pastor. And uh, today is the last day to be a part of that, nominating somebody. So I encourage you to do that. But several weeks ago, as leaders, we began to discuss the idea and the need for an interim pastor. And you may say, well, I thought you were the interim pastor. I, I'm not the interim pastor. I'm the teaching pastor here at the church. We feel like someone could come in and really do several things for us. One, help rebuild unity on our staff and, and deal with some trust issues that we're having on our staff. To, second thing would be to provide some leadership for our church and our staff in terms of a consultant role uh, with our church body. And then to preach most Sundays to help prepare us for our next pastor. And that doesn't mean that I won't preach too. I'll work with him just like I always have worked with the pastor here uh, in preaching. There'll be Sundays that he'll preach here and I'll go to Marshall and get to preach over there. Or I'll go to Marley and Espanol and preach over there. There's Sundays he'll go to Marshall and I'll preach here. So I'll still share the, the load of preaching with uh, the interim pastor. But we just feel like that at this time, that's what our church needs next to take us from here until we find our next pastor. Now, uh, we have been vetting candidates and talking to different people. And, and when we feel like the Lord has led us to the right man, here's how the process will work. We'll take that person to the personnel committee. They will interview that person. Um, they will make a recommendation to the chairman of the deacons, the deacon officers, and the deacon body. The deacon body will make a recommendation to the church. And ultimately, you will get a chance to hear that person preach, and you will get a chance to vote. That's the way we do it at Moberly. It's called Congregational Church. So you have, will have a chance to be a part of that. I think, and I believe wholeheartedly, this is our next step as a church. I'm in complete agreement with that. Some of you think, well, you're not going to preach as much. I may not. It's okay. That's fine. I didn't preach every Sunday before, and I'm fine with whatever. I'm glad to do whatever, but I think this is our next step. So if you have questions about this, you can actually email pastor at moberly.org. And one of our pastors will get back in touch with you this week and answer your questions about this. I realize it's kind of a new idea, but I think it's the right idea for us as we move forward. And so I want to encourage you not only as you pray for the pastor search committee process, but you would pray also for this interim process. Um, and so I just hope you'll do that today. Let me share one other update with you that's a personal update. Um, Dad, gummit, I don't know why I do this. Um, my wife, as you know, has been struggling. She was diagnosed just about a year ago with stage four breast cancer, and um, she had a scan this past week, and this is the first scan she's had in six months. It's been six months since her last one, and the scan came back cancer-free in her bones, no cancer at all. <laughs> so, and uh, I just want to say to you guys, some of you pray for her and me every day, and I don't know why I'm crying, but I appreciate it so much. 
It's not bad news. It's good news, okay? Uh, sometimes I'm more emotional about good news, and, and it is good news, and God is good. And I just want to say thank you to you. This is a praying church, and uh, when we tell you to turn those prayer requests in, it's true. We pray. And so you guys have lifted us up the whole way through our process, and thankful we have good news to share. We're really thankful for that. But um, let's pray together as we close the service out this morning, and then you'll be free to go. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness. Life isn't always good, but you are. You're always faithful. And we count on you. We trust in you, Father. And I thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. I do pray, God, that you'll bless us through this process of searching for a man that you already know to be our interim, and then ultimately the man that will lead our church as our next senior pastor. And I pray, God, that you will, for both of those searches, that you'll give us great wisdom and discernment and direction. You know, Lord, we have nothing to hide. We just want to lead the church in a way that honors you. So I pray, God, that we can move forward together in that way. But thank you this morning for your goodness and the freedom that comes from following you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.